I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcasts is supported by Infratech. Bring indoor comfort to outdoor living with Infratech Comfort Heaters. This is Spaces Podcasts where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Uh, Michelle, Jason is out today. I don't think it's fair to say he's out. He's MIA is really what's more accurate. Yeah. yeah. He did confirm the calendar invite and the recording time. Yeah. (laughs) So we talked about this briefly in our preview for season four uh, that we're going to talk about uh, mass timber construction, mass timber buildings. And I feel like an idiot. I completely misspoke when we initially had talked about this when I was explaining what mass timber was because I was thrown by the word timber. And when I initially had said it, I was referring to large timber pieces of wood. That is not the case at all. And we have some experts that will help clarify this a little bit, but it's um, more about sort of laminated wood construction. And then I had asked you, I think, about whether you had been in a building that was a mass timber building. Um, And I think at the time you had not or were not sure that you had experienced one and definitely didn't work on one. Has anything changed since? 
No, sir. Uh, in <laughs> fact, I have to admit, this is a topic that is very foreign to me. Uh, it's not really part of my day-to-day. At least I don't think it's part of my day-to-day. Maybe I'll be blown away and realize that actually I'm I'm involved in mass timber construction every day. But no, I, I don't think I've been in, in a mass timber project. One thing you may have come across, which is a very tiny example, is uh, like a glue lamb beam, large piece of wood, and you can see the lines, the layers that are in that large beam. That would be an example of sort of a mass timber member. Um, but let's bring in our experts to, to help. That's probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> to help make sure I'm not misspeaking further misleading people. Uh, but we brought in two people from uh, a firm that's become internationally known for their leadership in building with advanced wood products and technologies. This is from Michael Green Architecture. Uh, first guest is an award-winning architect, speaker, and author. He is a leader in wood construction and innovation who lectures internationally on the subject of mass timber and new building technology, including his TED Talk, which we will link as well, uh, called Why We Should Build Wooden Skyscrapers. And our other guest is educated in both architecture and engineering. Her approach is rooted in material logic. Combined with an emphasis on cross-team collaboration, she is driven towards elegant solutions that marry structure, systems, manufacturing, and architecture. In 2018, she became a principal alongside Michael Green at MGA and is taking an elevated role leading and inspiring project teams to design and deliver meaningful, innovative, and sustainable architecture. Please help me welcome Michael Green and Natalie Televiak. Michael, Natalie, thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be nice here. Nice to thanks. meet you both. Yeah. Uh, glad to have you guys on. Okay. We are looking forward to this conversation. I'm sure I misspoke about Mass Timber. I want you guys to correct me. But before we get into that, if you guys could just kind of fill in anything that I may have missed in your bio and then jump into telling us a little bit about uh, MGA, Michael Green Architecture. Sure. So let me jump in. So, so Natalie and I run our practice. We're about a 45 person practice right now in, in Vancouver, Canada. And um, we're kind of unique as a practice because we made a really strong commitment from day one when we started almost 10 years ago to building in wood and advanced wood technologies, but most of all to building in the most climate sensitive way. That's our real ambition is how do we make sure everything we do is, is really considering climate as, as really one of the biggest challenges on the planet today, maybe the biggest point challenge. And, and so that's kind of part of our striving kind of forces around environment and climate. And the other part is around societal issues and how we can address things like affordability through the technology of design and also through um, just thoughtful design in, in our day-to-day practice. Like you mentioned, you know, the common thread through our work is this kind of goal to reduce the amount of energy that goes into the building construction and then also how much energy is used throughout the operations of the building. You know, those are really kind of measurable quantitative things. But what's that element of experience and uh, how sustainability and energy use relates to how we live together, how our communities are built, how, um, you know, the spaces can really um, influence that and kind of change the way that we interact to 
look at overall um, kind of improving and reducing our impact on the environment. So some of them more quantitative, some of them much more experiential. And I think we're, you know, really driven by both of those angles uh, within our practice here in Vancouver. Now, okay, let's get into the correction if, if necessary. <laughs> uh, if an alien landed on the planet and heard about mass timber buildings and wanted to know what in the world does that mean, how would you guys explain what mass timber buildings are? So, I mean, a good place to start is everybody can imagine the old buildings that we used to see 100 years ago, big, giant beams of col uh, and columns of made of wood, right? And those were solid trees. Those were cut down from a solid tree, one single piece of wood, one single tree. But over the last century, we learned that if we take smaller trees, cut them into pieces, glue them together, we can make really, really, really strong parts to a building. And for a long time, that was beams and columns. That was the shape we built. And, and you mentioned it earlier, Demetrius, it's glue lamb is the kind of best known, but there's a whole bunch of products of, that are gluing together small parts to make beams and columns. And what changes about 25 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, we started making panels, not just beams and columns, not just large sticks to build with, but these big supersize, kind of like jumbo plywood where we glue together in different ways, glue together to make these huge panels out of small pieces of wood. And by gluing them together, we're making them really, really strong, which means we can build much bigger buildings than we ever imagined before in wood. Almost 11 and a half millennia ago, just a couple of centuries after the Ice Age, the oldest wood-framed house was built in what is the modern-day United Kingdom. This circular structure was likely constructed by the first humans to have settled in that part of Europe. From 9000 to 5000 BC, that initial structure was followed by one of the largest structures in the world at that time, and was identified as the Neolithic Longhouse a long narrow timber structure built to house 20 to 30 people. This style of home first appeared in Central Europe and are present across numerous regions and time periods in archaeological records. The longhouse was a rectangular structure 5.5 to 7 meters wide or 18 to 23 feet. It varied in length around 20 to 45 meters long or 65 to 146 feet. The main structure of the exterior walls were solid and massive, oak posts being preferred, infilled with wattle and daub. Coverage was provided by pitched thatched roofs. Basically, wood construction had been around for a long time. As toolmaking advanced behind the use of metals like copper and bronze, woodworking techniques also improved. Not only was wood used for structures, it was also used as tools for construction. In 2560 BC, entire forests were stripped to create levers and sledges during the construction of the Great Pyramids of Giza. In the construction of adobe structures, wood was used for formwork. By the Middle Ages, the construction of every building required the use of wood in some capacity. Timber framing, which was previously developed by the Romans in 50 AD, reached new heights around the world with incredible truss designs and craftsmanship. The invention of water mills triggered a shift which allowed carpenters to effectively saw timber and create wood planks and smaller members. Wood was quickly advancing. Its durability, abundance, and ease of construction made wood a desirable construction material. 
ever-increasing understanding of its capabilities made for an even brighter future. However, a number of building fires in the late 1800s and early 1900s, like the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, derailed the growth of wood as a construction material. Following those fires, wood was perceived as unsafe, particularly for large buildings. Coupled with the parallel rise of concrete and iron, then steel, wood was stymied and largely limited to small-scale projects. So wood industry really didn't flourish like it was supposed to, and you got a bad rap. And um, let's face it, fires uh, don't start by themselves. There was some source of ignition and the fires, uh, errors and emissions and what have you. So that's what kind of it gave wood a bad name. This is Shervin Rayani, certified engineering technologist and technical manager at Woodworks, a program of the Canadian Wood Council. Founded in 1959, the mission of the Canadian Wood Council is to expand market access and increase market demand for Canadian wood products throughout North America through work on codes, standards, and regulations. Now, even though there was public concern of wood safety, wood continued as a primary building material in residential construction, which was firmly on display during the U.S. housing boom following President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal policies between 1933 in 1939. You can hear more about that in our residential episodes. So as wood construction continued in residential markets, the Canadian Wood Council gave a concerted effort elsewhere, establishing the Woodworks program, which is intended to help increase the use of wood in non-residential, mid-rise, and tall building markets in Canada. These efforts would soon contribute to changing the course for wood construction, which we'll get to in a second. But I spoke with Shervin to get a better sense of this rollercoaster ride for wood as a building material and to better understand the technical aspects of wood construction. Timber burns at a predictable rate. That predictable rate is 0.65 millimeters per minute. Knowing this characteristic of the material, we can design our buildings a lot faster and a lot safer than any other product. Now, uh, 1960s, we started seeing roof trusses for your typical houses. So we were able to use um, a small dimension lumber. Fast forward to the mid 70s and what have you, plywood and uh, and uh, and OSP started to come on the mainstream. And as those technologies developed, we came across products called basically like an I beam, steel I beam, but it's all made out of wood two by four top and two by four bottom. And uh, so all of this uh, engineer would provide a way for uh, mass timber. I think it was in 1985 or so that this cross laminated timber was patented in France. And then it wasn't really a big market for it and the technology and the approvals and, and, the, and the testing and all that really didn't start up till about the year 2000. So by the year 2000 onwards, that's when mass timber started to uh, make a lot more grounds in the, in the industry as a, a viable source and material. Now, mass timber was a huge advancement that completely revitalized the potential of wood construction. But what exactly is it? 
Mass timber is, in a nutshell, in, a, in layman's term, basically small pieces of wood put together to create this huge uh, uh, section, such as a beam or a column or wall panel or uh, anything that is other than your two by four, your typical two by four, two by six, two by eight type of a construction. There's different uh, products. One is NLT, which is nail laminated timber. Another one is dowel, which is the same thing. You have a two by four, two by six, two by eight, depending on the design and the capabilities you're looking for. And they're joined together with a dowel instead of nails. There is a CLT, cross laminated timber, which is uh, one layer of uh, two by six at the bottom. And then the next layer on top is perpendicular to the base layer. And it's um, again, two by six on top. And then it can be up to three, five, and they got come in like uh, odd number layers, three, five, seven, and nine, and so on. Is there a certain wood that you cannot use and a certain wood that is preferred? The most common ones in Ontario, in Canada, are uh, your Douglas fir, birch, hemming fir, um, spruce, pine, and fir. In the United States, they do the same thing, except they have another product called Southern Yellow Pine, which is in abundance and it's a fairly good quality product. These are all soft lumbers. Now, for the hard lumber, hardwood, which is your oak and um, uh, maple and all of that, those are better suited for furniture manufacturing more dense products uh, they're a little bit harder to work with but not to say that they don't uh, they can you can't use them as a uh, building component but they're a lot more expensive that way too so the difference between uh, heavy timber and, um, and mass timber is heavy timber is a solid piece of four by four six by six so uh, like you see in moscow because you know those uh, are a-frame type constructions so those are heavy timber construction your solid piece you know, six by six posts and beams and so on. Whereas mass timber is smaller pieces put together, glued together as, as, as a system. In order to implement this type of advancement and code change, it requires a bit of a Herculean effort. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. So when we uh, uh, try to change the code, it's a five to 10 year process. Building codes come out every five years. So we need to be ahead at least five to 10 years ahead of the code change. We have professional engineers on staff at Canadian Wood Council who do a lot of the number crunching and and they come up with all the ideas as well as the input from the industry. So the industry and the Wood Council work together as a partner. Now, once we get all our data and we get our information, then we go to outside consultants with the outside consultants and we get the proposal to the NAT, to the building codes uh, for the changes. And then that is, again, a whole new ball of wax because that's where the, uh, the folks at the Canadian Wood Council uh, who are in charge of uh, making these changes, they have different departments within the federal and provincial governments, as well as the peer review and the general public input in order to make these changes. So it is a long, tedious and process, uh, but it does, and end results are always good. Now, we don't always win, unfortunately, but at least we open and they keep the doors open for future considerations of changes that are uh, suitable for the industry as a well. whole. As the data began to support mass timber construction, buildings began popping up in Europe. By about 2004, 2005, there was a lot of um, uh, buildings going up in Europe, England and the rest of Europe using mass timber. 
So once the industry and the politicians and the and the environmentalists got got a wind of this, they realized that this is a good viable source. We have a lot of natural resource material, and the 2050 Paris Accord, as an example, reducing of the greenhouse gas emissions. So putting all that together, everything is somewhat falling into space. So the Wood Council and uh, Woodworks uh, uh, efforts, uh, with their efforts, in 2015, uh, it was allowed to go to uh, six-story tall buildings out of wood. The Paris Climate Agreement is an international treaty on climate change adopted in 2015. It covers climate change mitigation, adaptation, and finance. Behind this shift in thinking, renewable resources came into focus and mass timber construction began to make more sense and grow in popularity. And by 2020, National Building Court of Canada uh, has uh, accepted or adopted the uh, uh, eight up to 12 story encapsulated uh, wood buildings. Uh, so, uh, and also we were able to uh, promote alternative uh, solutions within the National Building Code and Provincial Building Codes to allow designers um, to design buildings uh, that are that fall out of the building code prescribed uh, system. The use of wood in construction has come a long way. From thousands of years ago to our amazing usage today, wood has been through a series of ups and downs. To hear more about the benefits and process of design and construction, stick around and we'll get back to the conversation after this break to hear from our sponsors. In the last few years, premium outdoor spaces have become a must-have architectural feature and Infratech outdoor electric heating systems have become the brand of choice among leading architects. Infratech heaters provide energy-efficient, ambient warmth that allows homeowners to live outdoors during cooler months. Clients love them because they can enjoy 100 more nights a year outside. Architects love them because of the unparalleled versatility from heater capacities and colors to mounting options that can either seamlessly disappear or accentuate a space with beautiful decorative coverings. They're also the only comfort heating company to offer smart home integration and hands-free voice-activated control. For over 60 years, Infratech has made their products in the USA at competitive prices. They offer incredible design and live technical support at every stage of a job. Infratech is specified at the world's most prestigious properties. Learn why and sign up for a free consultation at infratech-usa.com forward slash podcasts. And just to highlight a little bit of that versatility, you know, we talked about how commercial units are all big and clunky, but these are have options to do much more sleek and uh, clean looking design. They have four mounting options available, including a recess option, eight standard colors, and unlimited custom colors, as well as multiple decorative covers for different design options. What makes like it so strong is the cross-layering of the, the wood, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, what... Uh we have the opportunity to do when we make these products is look at the material properties of a piece of wood. So we think about its length, where is it really strong? Where is it good in the different tension and compression? And then carefully lay that out. So sometimes in cross laminated, so that's basically taking that 
piece of wood and then rotating it on a 90 degree ang angle to create these larger panels. And that's really to respond to uh, different conditions in a building. So we think about a floor plate. So the kind of all the, the kind of stacked floor plates within a building have different jobs than the columns do. And the really great part about making these products is that we can take the material properties and then build these systems to respond to the most efficient way of using that material. And what's really exciting is that there are constantly kind of new products, new takes on these to really look at what does efficiency look like? How can we really think carefully about using this material responsibly? Michael, now you mentioned uh, about 25 years ago, I think that it started to shift into starting to create panels and things like that. Is there anything else that you, because I've noticed there's a recent surge and conversation around mass timber. Is it just that or is it something else that's sort of hit the zeitgeist of why people want to go towards mass timber? Yeah. So, so at the outside, we talked about how our firm is really focused on climate and the impact buildings have on climate. And what that's about and the reason mass timber is taking off as a conversation is that steel and concrete are really high energy and really high carbon greenhouse gas emitting materials mm -hmm. for a whole bunch of reasons, but most of all, because they take intense heat to create them. Either we're breaking down limestone at huge heat, which is usually from a fossil fuel based energy source to make concrete, or we're using huge heat to smelt steel. And so those materials together represent almost 11% of man's greenhouse gas emissions. Concrete just as a material is almost 6%. And it's it's such a large carbon footprint, we have to change as an industry. So we have to build over the next 20 years, we have to build housing for about 3 billion people in the world. And if we use concrete and steel the way we have been using them, we're going to have an enormous carbon footprint increase, which is exactly what we have to stop. And in fact, by the end of this decade, we have to half global carbon. And so wood is a really unique material. When you use wood, it actually is giving us oxygen when a tree is growing and it's soaking up carbon dioxide. And so when you take a tree and turn it into a wood product, whether it's in a building or a piece of furniture or anything, it's locking that carbon and storing it. And the two things we do, no matter what industry we're talking about to counteract climate change is reduce our emissions, which wood does because we're not using steel and concrete and store carbon, which wood does naturally. And so the choice to move to wood for us as a firm is about choosing not only the lowest carbon material, but the material that actually stores carbon. And if we don't do that, if we don't find ways to do that, we are never going to meet our climate goals, which is why a lot of this construction type is now part of intergovernmental panel on climate change's recommendations for how we address climate change, you know, which is a really important thing for architects to be considering. Natalie, what are some of the other benefits that that you see from this shift to leaning into wood as as a product like that for both structural and just aesthetic maybe of of a space? Absolutely, great question. And I think the experience part of that is really the exciting potential there. And like there's kind of two angles. One is the kind of the term biophilia. I'm not sure if you've had any um, podcasts on that, but you should definitely, you know, if you, you have the opportunity to do one, but yeah. that kind of connection to nature and how design can be that both direct and indirect connection to nature. And so with wood as this warm natural material, um, there's that strength and connection to the, to the environment that we live in. And 
that has shown to reduce stress in environments. It's a very healing material in terms of potential to impact um, kind of our overall wellness. And so we're finding that not only the kind of climate drivers, which are just the quantitative measurable aspects, but also this kind of component of experience and how it can really enhance um, the communities that we live in. And I think the second part of experience, which we're kind of driving more and more towards is what does flexibility look like in a changing city? And I think we're all living through lots of different discussions about that in a kind of post-pandemic pandemic world. But when we're thinking about the future building suck that we're um, imagining together, what does that look like that that structure is flexible and able to adapt to different uses over time? And Michael mentioned at the beginning of the call, the, um, you know, the older uh, kind of warehouse, um, older buildings, light industrial buildings that have quite a bit of that timber, the kind of larger timber elements. And one of the reasons why those exist today is because they're inherently quite flexible. And have imagined new lives over over and over again and have done that in a really successful way. And so I think kind of finding that new voice for timber construction within that context is, is a really exciting opportunity to imagine how it will exist and continue to exist for centuries. We actually just published a episode on adaptive reuse. So are you guys seeing this mass timber fill in maybe where um, some of the existing structure may be deteriorating and a mass timber beam goes in to replace, or is it in addition to, or how does that kind of work? Uh, more so thinking about the overall building. So uh, when we think about those older buildings, it's actually the timber is intact. So it's mm. the opportunity to reuse those Got the it. older buildings. And then looking forward, when we're thinking of new office buildings, new residential buildings, how can we consider that shell? So the bones of the building, what that structure is. And timber is a really great backdrop for that flexibility. So I think it kind of ties hand in hand to thinking about really allowing and designing intentionally for that adaptive reuse moving forward. One of the unique things about wood is its strength to weight. So when we consider that a wood building of the type we're talking about is usually about one sixth the weight of a concrete building or one quarter the weight of a steel building. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what goes into building a concrete building, a lot of the structure is actually just there to hold up the very weight of the concrete itself. <laughs> yeah. So when we think again about climate context, we're pumping a ton of material in just to because the material is actually pretty inefficient. And steel is, is actually, you know, similarly, it's very heavy relative to what it can do. And so one of the unique and wonderful qualities about these mass timber buildings is they're relatively light, but still very strong. And so they work at great heights and they work at great scales where wood typically hasn't shown up for the last century. So it's, you know, yes, a century ago, it might have been big industrial buildings made of timber. But for the last century, they've been steel and concrete. And what's changing is we're going back to be able to bring these big materials into big buildings in the urban context, which is where people are obviously going to live more and more and more for the next century. So with that lighter frame, you end up with a much shallower foundation, essentially. Yeah, it can impact your foundation. It can. It certainly can impact your cost. It can. And these buildings are very fast to build. They're very quiet to build. A lot of the things that we don't measure on the cost of a building, we don't measure the, the carbon impact. So we don't put a cost to carbon. We don't put a cost to the time. So if you shut down a, a city block to build a building with concrete trucks coming and going for a year, there's a huge cost to a community, but that's not captured in the cost of a building really. Mm -hmm. And it should be, it's the societal cost. 
or the noise if all the neighbors are kept up late at night because or woken up early in the morning because of the noise of a construction site that's not a cost that we ever capture but there's all these associated costs of construction not captured that that are important for us to consider when we're thinking about how we build cities in the future because all of those relate to human health and well-being so i would argue um on the capturing of the cost as it relates to the timing. And you used a really good example with the concrete trucks coming into a city block. And, you know, if that's happening over a year's time, that cost is, is actually being captured. It's being captured in the time value of money, um, assuming that a developer is using a pro, you know, cash flow pro forma model, right? Yeah. So if you were to demonstrate not the concrete example, but the mass timber example, what would be interesting is if you said, hey, it's going to take a year for concrete trucks to be coming in and out. But if you go mass timber, you're now the time of constructability for this same exact building, except that instead of concrete, you're using mass timber is four months, right? Arguably, you should see a tremendous cost savings just in the time value of money, uh, both from an IRR standpoint but also just your, you know, your overall cost capital. That's exactly correct. But that's the project cost. What I was speaking about is the the social impact cost, which we don't know. Got it. Okay. So if a business is shut down on that block because nobody can get to, you know, the small restaurant that is being blocked by that, that neighbor's big construction project. So you're talking about the intangibles, right? The intangibles that we currently don't think about, but when we build on the volume we need to build, we need to start to think about more than just a project cost. You're quite right that to the project, capturing that time value is a very real thing. And that shorter construction period is very, very important to the overall project cost. Natalie, can you tell us a little bit about process? When you're taking on a mass timber project, what does that process look like? And does it differ from another type of building uh, process? Process is something that we talk about a lot. And uh, with mass timber buildings in our practice, um, what's really important and slightly different than a traditional process is involving all the players really early. And so the players being, of course, the consultant team, all the other engineers involved, but also the um, material suppliers. So even very early days involving who will be fabricating, where will the forest be that the timber will come from and the fiber will come from. Um, when we were talking about mass timber, we're always looking at where the wood comes from because the sustainability of that forest practice is critical to all these carbon goals that we're talking about. And so um, kind of day one, really thinking about that whole process um, as well, bringing on the, the contractor whenever we can early and along with the whole stakeholder team. And in the process, allowing that early stage so the pre-design phase and in the process is quite critical to really establishing how we can best take advantage of these climate goals, how we can think about experience, how we consider the complexities just of the industry in terms of timing for making sure we have the, the, all the materials that we need, and then how to really think about the design then as a product of all of those different people, all of those different players' ideas. And so thinking carefully about that process, where those milestones are, sometimes where we bring community in whenever we can, if that's a, if it's a community-based project, and then kind of concluding that with at the end of the project as well, cons- including the whole team along that phase. So yeah, there's a funny thing that happens with these buildings and that's that the wood is exposed. And when you, 
it, what that means is that, you know, with a steel or concrete building, you might, you, your mechanical systems, your electrical system, you're here to cover all that stuff up with a drop ceiling or drywall or whatever. And so often from a design process point of view, you know, you can get pretty far down the road before you get, you bring on the consultants because you feel like, well, they'll find a home for their, you know, their components, the ductwork. <laughs> And that obviously isn't a great system. Like they, they should always come in early. But in, in mass timber, you have to bring people in early, all these, these other aspects of the design, because you're going to see that ductwork if you're not careful. And you're going to see that electrical if you're not careful. And so it's a really much more integrated design process than the traditional process. What's funny for us as a practice is we've always worked in this highly integrated way and didn't quite appreciate when clients started asking us, do you work in an integrated de design process? <laughs> and, and we were like, well, what else would you do? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it's kind of because we work in this material where you have no choice, but to work that way. And that's where the great joy comes from in the process. And in our experience, as Natalie says, bringing in contractors early is different than a lot of other building types. But for us, it's the difference between success and a successful project and a less successful project. So it is a bit different than conventional construction. In conventional construction, you can specify the quality of wood based on if it's going to be exposed or not. Is that is there a similar quality in mass timber or is it just all one thing? No, there's definitely, there's quite a bit of um, kind of ability to spec that, that species and also the grade. So what kind of um, grade of finish you'll see on the underside of the CLT panel or on the edge of the glue lamb. And one of the really exciting parts is to, when we're working in different places around the world, is to think about what is that species? What are the kind of potentials of really celebrating that kind of local, those local forests? And then, you know, being honest about that, you know, if there's a certain species that's there and there's a grade that's different, maybe not perfect, but mm -hmm. celebrating those imperfections and the story where each of those trees come from. We have projects all over the world right now. We've been lucky enough to have, we have a project in Paris and sealed in cross laminated timber. We have a project in Sweden. And what we're finding as we work in different parts is Natalie says the wood is always different. The product suppliers are different. The way the panels are glued together is different and different trees have different strength. And so we've learned a lot about those kinds of issues. So it's not just an aesthetic choice. It's often very directly tied to, you know, the thickness of a panel would could be quite different between, say, a Douglas fir that you would get here in the Pacific Northwest and what we call an SPF or a spruce pine fir that you might get further east. Um, Douglas fir is much stronger and the panel is much thinner or mm -hmm. could be thinner. Um, and so knowing those things, it's there's an aesthetic part, but there's a big time structural part as well to understand. Now, it seems like mass timber, the biggest benefit is in vertical buildings. Is that kind of the right analysis or do you think there, because we're in sort of the home, home building industry, do you see it being applicable to home building, sort of large scale development in that sort of way? Yeah, so, so a lot of this is about cost. And so um, just as a sort of fun backstory, Mass timber and cross laminated timber, which is kind of the grand granddaddy of mass timber, it's the best known, um, started in Central Europe. And it started in, in mostly in Austria because almost all houses were built in concrete or concrete block. And the forestry sector said, well, how do we get more wood? We don't want to do it the way North America does it, which is with stick frame, two by four or two by six construction. 
truthfully in Europe, they find that kind of cheap quality construction. <laughs> and so, so they developed these products, these, these laminated massive, massive scale wood products, really because they had to culturally compete with concrete. Hmm. And that was the origin story. But what was interesting for them, that origin story was about two-story houses. It wasn't about big, tall buildings. It was very much about two-story. And in fact, the code in Switzerland maximized wood height at two stories. That's as big as you could build. And so in those early days, they had never conceived of that scale. What happened for us is in the, you know, 20 years ago, when I got to first visit and see how these products were being made, I knew in North America, the least expensive way to build a home is still stick frame. Mm -hmm. Really hard to make it cost competitive because there's not that much wood and stick. And culturally, we're really good in North America at building stick. You know, there's lots and lots of carpenters. There's lots of capacity in the home building industry. So these products to be cost competitive had to show up somewhere different. They had to show up in a different market than anywhere where it was stick, it would be cheaper. And so that's where we started to look at, okay, let's bring it into the urban context. And not just tall buildings, but any building where stick couldn't be used, you know, where it's going to be steel and concrete based on the code or, or tradition. How did these materials step into that arena? And there's almost no building type that can't be built with this. Um, there, there are some where it becomes more challenging, but for the most part, almost any building type could be built with this material. I loved hearing that because I, I was trying to draw the connection between North American home building, stick framed construction, both from a public home builder mindset, right? If you think about like the top 10 public home builders in North America, but also from a multifamily, like think about the REITs and some of the largest multifamily developers and home and builders, you know, they sort of pride themselves when they can do a four-story or five-story wood-framed building, right? If that's a wrap building, or maybe it's a, a wood-framed on top of a podium deck type of thing. So with mass timber, can it compete in North America? Like I recognize it's probably a different scenario when you talk about Europe and different building regulations and, and such, but what how are you going to convince, not you in particular, but just how do you convince the public home builders and the largest REITs to go to mass timber when it's, it's as you said, we're in, here in North America, we're really good at stick frame, two by four construction. We've been uh, talking about this a lot, Micah. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, we do take it on our shoulders to have to convince people. So that's okay. <laughs> that's, our, that's been our job since the beginning. When we started this tall wood stuff, we were definitely kind of seen as a bit crazy. And now, thankfully, it's become mainstream. But, um, yeah, the answer to that is, is it depends where you are in North America and depends what labor rates are. And so what's become really interesting is stick is um, – you know, it's fast, lots of trades can do it. It's what we know, it's our culture. But it's also, as you get into even like here in British Columbia and in parts of Canada, we're allowed to build six story in stick frame in high earthquake zones. It's actually pretty messy. It's actually a very, you're throwing a lot of sticks to make something work when you're at six stories or even five stories in, in yeah. Seattle, right? And that's the interesting place where, sure, it may be as a material cheaper to go with stick, but when you add up time, we're actually starting to see exam concrete examples here in Vancouver, where the labor savings by using mass timber far outweighs the increased material cost. And the speed and the material, uh, the, that labor savings means that 
Um, it's so fast, so clean. So when you finish a stick, when you know when your framers come in and and, and build a multifamily stick building, you've got trades standing on top of trades right afterwards, right? Everybody's kind of on this very complicated site at the same time. With mass timber, you're you're literally building a floor a day. Typically, it's that speed, meaning your trades are in and out, and your holes, all of your your service alignments, all show up perfectly accurately cut in the factory. And so when that guy's dropping in a plumbing pipe riser through the building, he's not drilling a hole through the entire building on site with all the waste and all the coordination that he has to do. He's literally got a hole that already lines up through the building that's been pre-drilled in the factory and just drops his pipe through. All of those savings in time and labor basically start to make mass timber really competitive at a, on, a, on a multifamily scale. And then most recently example, we saw that it was three or 4% less expensive than stick. Where does the mass timber come from? I mean, is there is there a, a series of manufacturers of mass timber? Does it come directly from the labor from the uh, not labor <laughs> from the lumber company? Yeah, so there's um there's factories all over North America now. Thankfully, they popping new ones popping up every couple of years. Um, some will do the cross laminated timber panels and Wulam. Some will specialize in one um, product. Um, but they're kind of across the across the continent now, and also available um, coming from Europe. Like Michael mentioned, there's kind of a diversity of species and products that are um, have different properties, and sometimes they make sense to employ in North America. And I think another piece to the kind of what makes it competitive to five or six story um, lightwood frame is that coming back to that piece about flexibility. And that doesn't necessarily need to be flexibility, you know, 50 years from now, things change with the kind of needs of the building, but also in terms of the layout. And so as Michael mentioned, some of the things we're finding with um, local projects is that the system, the kind of frame of the mass timber construction can be really flexible and able to respond to different layouts, different unit layouts. If you think about, you know, you build a a stick frame wall, it's really stuck there and taking that apart is is going to be demolishing a lot of aspects of the building. When you look at um, what does that look like in timber frame, it just, there's that kind of cost benefit of thinking about that flexibility in day one and then flexibility kind of longer term as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In COVID, we've seen a lot of residential layouts change very recently. Some of our projects that have been you know, designed early in COVID, now we're seeing a lot of our clients come back and say, well, we're going to redesign every unit so that there's a private office space in the unit. Mm-hmm. Well, in a stick frame building, you're redesigning the structure half the time, whereas in these mass timber projects, you're not. The structure stays the same. You're just moving demising walls that are non-load bearing. When you take on these projects um we've talked about a lot of the benefits what is some of the more complex parts of taking on a mass timber project and major considerations as you approach this project one of the kind of early on analysis that we'll always do is the kind of code analysis to see kind of what's possible and so over the past decade that's often been you know as we were kind of approaching um communities and doing something new, something that's never been done there before. That process of kind of looking at the science together, looking at the um, kind of potential to build a a low carbon building in this way, and then thinking about how that relates back to the code, the building code and the intent of the code. And so that change, you know, takes quite a bit of um, analysis, conversation, dialogue. What we're having now, we have now within the code, we're permitted to build up to 18 stories um, within just the basic code parameters. And so that has opened up 
Um, exactly. Yeah. And so there's parameters now that's already baked into the code. Um, it's adopted in some states and some states are, are going to be adopting soon. In Canada, we're able to build up to 12 stories. And then across the world, there's kind of different levels that we're looking at. And then that's just the prescriptive. So like the baseline, what's written down in the code. And then beyond that, when you look at the science of the fire code analysis structure architecture, we're able to go up to 35, 40 stories within timber. And so I think one of the reasons, you know, when we talked earlier about why are we seeing so many more of these buildings, it's that all the reasons we've talking about with you know, lower, lower carbon construction, and now that's possible within, you know, the protocol and all the different building codes we need to meet. So definitely, um, it's still always a conversation at the very beginning of a project. These are still quite new um, concepts and ideas to be talking with um, jurisdictions about and project teams. So we'll just put that right at the beginning when we get the whole team together um, and make sure that we have that path kind of laid out. We've been lucky because we've been at this since the beginning of, of time at this point. <laughs> and uh, and uh, as a result, of course, our clients come to us because they know that. They come to us because they know we've been doing this for a very long time. And we've had the privilege of being able to build some of the, the what well, we built the first one in North America, the first tallwood building in North America. And in that process, we were allowed to work outside of the conventions of the building code. And so we work with teams of experts that both ended up really informing today's evolution of the building code, but also are looking at what's next. And we're working on a number of projects, 34 stories um, here at home that are well exceeding the building code, but there's a there's a pathway, as Natalie says, for us to be able to do that. And we need to do that because what these taller projects do is they, they change the public's perception of what is possible, which is a big part of our job. It's not just about, um, you know, these buildings are safe. If, you know, we could build 50, 60, 70 stories safely if we really wanted to. It's really about getting people comfortable with those kinds of scales in a material that they haven't thought about for a century. Yeah. That's not just the general public that's getting architects to reshape their imagination. I think architects for so long have been stuck in the idea that steel and concrete are quote unquote modern. And we often say, you know, the most sophisticated material that you can build with is, is wood. It just happens that mother nature holds the patent on it. And I think, you know, as man, we assume that it has to be man-made to be modern. Quite contrary. We're all back to learning from nature and realizing that, there's far more that we can learn and adapt from nature than assume that we somehow have figured it out already. Um, and that's where wood gets fun, right? It's gets, that's why it's the land of innovation and continuing to evolve every day. One of the conversations that has happened quite a bit when talking about prefab is that if you don't have a prefab factory within close proximity to your job site, Sometimes it's a wash or it's not even worth it just because the delivery times, mm -hmm. you know, make it not worthwhile. Is that also a conversation that is prevalent in the mass timber space? Yeah, it's definitely a conversation. And I think one of the considerations different than sometimes prefab, though, is they can often be shipped kind of as panels, so stacked directly next to one another. So there's not a lot of air that you're shipping. 
it's certainly still a consideration and we'll look at often it'll be, how is it coming? Is it arriving by train or by water and kind of thinking about that just like you would in prefab. But I would say one of the biggest differences is that you're often not shipping air. So it can make it feasible, even sometimes coming from, uh, from Europe, um, depending on the type of project and the kind of overall project goals. So it's a factor, but I would say it's just a different consideration than with prefab. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to remember that steel projects often end up with steel shipped from China. We're no longer, we're in a globalized world when it comes to so many of these materials and the cost um, needs to be factored from a carbon point of view into it. it needs to, you know, it's a very important part of the calculation of how far you're shipping. It is interesting that it's probably lower carbon often to ship wood to the East coast of the United States from Europe than it is from the West coast of the United States. It's probably a lower carbon footprint. But at this point, the sort of both from a cost point of view and a carbon point of view, there's really no place in North America that can't be reached cost effectively and carbon effectively at when compared to other materials um, once you fully analyze it. But it might change the choice of the material you use to figure out what is the local, what's the most local choice. There's a new manufacturer, well, it's actually a British Columbia manufacturer um, that just built in Arkansas a big factory to make cross-laminated timber. Well, that region now has a wonderful large-scale, very sophisticated supply um, source for that entire region. And I think we'll see this pop in every corner. They're, they're smaller scale in the Northeast and, and then up and down the West Coast. There are already a, a number of different suppliers. And at that point, pretty much everything's reachable. And, and you know, when it comes to prefab, because we're quite interested, invested in the future of prefab, because we, we, we believe that has to be part of a solution to more affordable building. Um, as Natalie said, there's different ways of thinking of prefab. Shipping volumetric prefab generally doesn't make a lot of sense because you're shipping air and so that's yeah. a high carbon footprint but panelized prefab can still be cost effective depending where you are yeah i mean and i my questions really are rooted from my vantage point which is you know i i work for a residential developer and home builder we build subdivisions townhomes community communities townhome communities single family detached some condo flats all throughout California in urban and fill environments. And, you know, mass timber is not a conversation that any of the home builders to my knowledge are having. Uh, and, and you kind of scratch your head and you say, you want to know why, why, why is that not a conversation that any of the public home builders or private, you know, larger scale home builders are having? I'm curious, you know, Brookfield obviously is a Canadian based international developer doing every size project imaginable. Is this something that you guys have pitched to them or have they approached you in any way? So our, our practice doesn't tend to do a lot of single family type scale projects, right? We tend to be multifamily and up. And that's just kind of where we have had our focus. So we haven't really focused into the single family market in particular, or the suburban market in particular, probably for a whole bunch of reasons. It probably doesn't align with our carbon objectives to build that way anyway. So like with, with apologies that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a changing typology from a carbon story point of view. And so we haven't quite broken that market with mass timber yet. And part of that's also just the volume of the material produced, right? When we first introduced a lot of these early concepts of mass timber, the first thing people wanted to know is, is it cheaper than steel and concrete? And you're kind of like, well, they've got a hundred year head start on us. So we're still kind of trying to catch up. Now it's cheaper, but barely. Eventually it'll be a lot cheaper. With luck, and I'll say this, you know, from a personal point of view, we are 
months away from a carbon tax that will dramatically change the future of construction and choices around steel and concrete. And that that's not just a hope, that's like a prayer because if we don't get there, there's no chance we get to 2030 halving our global carbon emissions. So if that happens, these solutions become unbelievably more cost-effective. And so any home builder at any scale that's thinking about where policy shifts are inevitably gonna happen, um, regardless of the politics of the country you're in, are probably need to be thinking about these things of what you know what we call embodied carbon and the materials you're choosing to build with because the dynamics of cost are going to change without question. As part of that too, um, when we're looking at lightwood frame houses, it, and I think the conversation becomes really interesting because it's not just about the structure, right? And I think the kind of policy shifts that we're seeing about measuring and having a kind of a limit of how much embodied carbon um, is permitted in construction is really exciting. And it also, you know, it pushes innovation in all of the other aspects of a building, right? So, you know, in some cases, absolutely lightwood frame will be the lowest carbon um, solution. And then it's really about what are those other components? What is the cladding? What's the envelope? How does it overall look at net zero carbon for the building itself and then net zero operations. And I think, you know, mass timber plays a part. And I think what's really interesting is there's so many other types of innovations and products that are coming to play that will be part of that conversation too. Yeah, that's one of the cool things. So so there's huge, we sometimes are seen as, well, you're advocating for wood and against concrete and steel. <laughs> the super exciting thing is steel and concrete are getting better. And I think that Part of the reason they're getting better is because there's a competitive alternative from a carbon point of view. And so they're recognizing that they've got to be ready for this new paradigm where carbon matters. And so we're starting to see huge innovations in concrete, huge innovations in steel, that honestly, there'll be a tipping point where they're better than wood again. And as a firm, we'll go back to those materials the moment they're better. And so all of us have to kind of hold all aspects of the industry. There's huge flaws in the timber story. If you source from like irresponsible forestry, there's huge flaws in concrete. If you get fossil fuel based concrete, there's all these different ways of seeing it. But the most important thing is all these industries are trying to get better. And by creating competition with mass timber, it's actually woken up steel and concrete to actually improve their industries. And that's incredibly valuable to the world. To that point, and I think a little bit to Michelle's previous point, our industry tends to look for a reason to not change, I think. And with the recent news of the supply chain issues and the recent surge in wood costs, are you guys seeing that sort of be a reason people are shying away from mass timber? And, and how do you kind of respond to that? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. It was interesting to watch what happened in light lumber prices which went through the roof and now kind of settled back down but it's such a commodity material and as it turned out covid brought a housing boom and like all kinds of changes in that marketplace what was interesting is mass timber increased but it increased proportionally to steel and concrete it didn't increase proportionate to to light wood frame hmm. now the economics of that i can't say i completely understand why that was the case there is a huge difference. A lot of the producers to date have been in Canada. The way now there's many more in the United States. There's a very different model of how forestry works in Canada versus the United States that changes the pricing dynamic and causes truthfully a lot of complicated trade issues between the two countries. In Canada, forestry is mostly on what we call crown land, so government land that leases out what's called a stumpage rate per tree. 
Um, in the United States, almost all trees are cut on private land. And as a result, you have really different pricing implications. But the mass timber industry tends to buy material in Canada six months ahead of time. So they're not vulnerable to the volatility of, of stick frame costs. Mm-hmm. In the United States, they can't do that. They have to buy, um, you know, like any other kind of consumer. And so they're much more volatile to those changing prices. That all has to get cleaned up. This is, this is all, to me, a flaw in the system that both countries should do things in a more alignment and both countries should be kind of cleaning up the messiness of the of the commodity pricing it needs to be more stable for them for them to be successful as an industry mm-hmm. and you know what we see in steel is some big you know or concrete even we see how you know a big dam in china throws steel prices through the roof I mean, we see the globalization of pricing on things and i think to your point stay looking more inward right to what what does north america produce whether it's steel concrete or wood and how do we stabilize those markets is really important to manage affordability in the long run for our industry let's talk about single family residential but in the context of a townhome so if you have a you know 180 unit project and each building is a 10 plex and they're row townhomes uh you've got 18 building i mean is this yeah, absolutely. Is mass timber something where that starts to make sense on a 10 plex row townhome, three, st- you know, three story type of building, 35 to 40 feet in height? Yeah, it could. And and why I say could. Yeah. So this is this is how to think about it. You start getting really cool blends. So it may be that your floors are all mass timber slabs, but your walls are light wood frame cassettes that are built off site and prefabricated because the code does not require, you know, allows for combustible materials means that you're allowed to go with low cost stick frame. You can start to see hybriding of these materials, right? We've done, we've, I mean, we've explored, we've got some challenges with steel stud with mass timber floors, for instance. And so there's, and I think in different regions, those are all things that architects can start to really hone in on what's the most cost-effective way to do these. I think the, you know, I think Demetrius, to your point, our in, our entire industry is slow to change <laughs> and resists change and assumes change is impossible. Our experience has changed; it's actually happening, but it, but it shouldn't be assumed that there's one way to do it. I think depending where you know, are in, in the States, there's lots of places that mass timber can make sense at that scale. So do you think there's a premium for either the home buyer or the tenant that's renting the office space or the residential space or the retail space, or is there no premium? I mean, cause you've talked a lot about just the design element is sexier it's better it's cooler you get this really cool wood finish i mean so does someone pay a little more because of that yeah so let's tackle those as two different issues right i think on the residential side the answer is it depends where you are so in portland there's a bunch of this happening there's enthusiasm happening in the marketplace in victoria british columbia close to us there's enthusiasm in the marketplace so people are attracted to these buildings and understand and invest in carbon the carbon story but it's also fair to say in lots of parts of the country, choosing a lower carbon solution is not something you're going to pay for. And the aesthetic, you can mimic the aesthetic by putting wood on the wall or wood on the ceiling that's a, just a finish. And so I wouldn't say in lots of places you're going to get a higher return on a residential project necessarily. Now, if you're competing with concrete, you might, right? So again, when you're jumping to a bigger building and it's an exposed concrete, you know, 
building with not great concrete quality work and not architectural grade necessarily like often is the case versus a mass timber you're, yeah you're going to get a better you're going to get a better return on mass timber on offices it's a bit different and that will we can speak from pretty specific experience on that um we did a project for Heinz, obviously a huge developer in the U.S. Of, of big towers, and it's called T3. And it was the first tall wood building in the United States, and it's an office building in Minneapolis. And and um, and what was so interesting about that is they they leased it out immediately. It was un, it was unbelievable. And the thesis of their argument to get into mass timber, this was years ago, was that they kept being asked as a major landlord we're not retaining our staff and we're not attracting staff because we're in this big, boring, generic office building with, you know, lay and tile ceiling and, and steel columns wrapped in drywall and, and all glass. And what we want are cool old historic buildings with brick and, and wood, but we can't find those spaces. And if we find them, they're leaky, the windows leak and the air conditioning doesn't work and the wiring is terrible and the Wi-Fi is terrible. And so Heinz stepped back and said, well, maybe we just start building those buildings again and start new. And that's what we did for them. And Amazon moved in. And to this day, I get, I meet people randomly all over the world that are like, I work in that building. It's the single best, like they're, they're the most enthusiastic people I've ever met <laughs> about being in that building. And it's because they, they're, that's what actually people want. People don't want the mundane of, a, of the right. work pieces we've been building for a long time and they'll pay more for, for better. Your host here in California, is there an example nearby uh, in Southern California that we could go to? Uh, well, we have a lovely project in California that we don't get to talk publicly too much about, but we would love to show you that one. It's enormous and very important and in the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, and we'll be public about it in the near future. T3s, I don't know. I don't think there's anything built in California yet, but certainly if you're driving down the highway through places like San Jose, you might see a big timber building on the horizon and uh, soon to be two. And I think those are the things that will start to, you know, you're seeing the big Silicon Valley companies, all of them get pretty serious about this because, you know, I think we're going to see, continue to see a lot of change in our industry. And, and as it turns out, those companies made an enormous amount of money and in their diversification, they're all going to become developers. They're all going to become uh builders i think they'll get into the construction industry as well and as they do they are all doubling into doubling down into mass timber and that's super exciting and and it's part of their climate goals and that's really also exciting i think you guys gave a lot of tips good tips throughout this conversation but what would be one thing um, that each of you may think of a recommendation for someone that's going to start a mass timber building, whether it's the developer, the architect, whoever it is, in your mind, what's one of the things that pops up that they should consider? Like anything new, it's just that kind of curiosity. And I think one of the things that's really wonderful about the mass timber industry is there is a kind of a culture of sharing ideas. And so when we look at, there's some really great conferences. There's one great one in Portland, you know, they just had one down in, uh, in Texas all over Europe. And when we kind of come together as an industry, it's kind of because it's been this growing kind of innovation hub for, for you know, the past kind of couple decades, there is that, um, that inherent element of sharing. And so I would say, you know, reach out. People are generally really excited to share ideas. We certainly are. It's one of the biggest parts, kind of our philosophy is like, let's learn and share. And then likewise, let's build on those ideas together. You know, I think the, the climate goals that we have globally are 
so ambitious and so necessary that it is our responsibility to share our ideas together um, and, you know, pick up the phone and, you know, if someone's new to it, let's share those ideas with that person. And so I would say just like start, start somewhere and start making some phone calls and, you know, go from there um, and then, you know, pay that forward in terms of allowing the industry to kind of grow, grow that way. Totally. That reminds me, we have to unlist our phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I think that's spot on is sharing is really important. I think if you're an architect um, and you want to get into this, um, there's obviously great resources for in the US, United States through the Woodworks program in Canada as well. There are great resources out there. And as Natalie said, conferences are great. But I think the other thing is find the people that are doing it, um, which means if you're an architect, find an engineer that knows what they're doing. It is unbelievably important to work with people with some experience and it's hard to get experience. So at least build a team with some folks that have done it to teach the other folks that have not. So if you're an architect, get an engineer that knows mass timber. If you're an engineer, find an architect that knows mass timber. You know, partner up with somebody that knows what they're doing because the life lessons are, yes, important to share, but it's unbelievably valuable to understand. This material is a, a kind of living material. It takes on moisture, it releases moisture, it shrinks, it cracks, it changes. Um, you have to know how to build with it. It's not, you know, sort of turn it over to the engineer and say, just make it work. You as an architect have to be in the weeds of understanding this really incredible, beautiful material um, because it's alive. Are there a lot of architecture firms that are doing this? So for a long time, we were, pretty much alone. And, um, but we believed in sharing. We wrote a book, we talk a lot and there are a bunch of others like us that were doing the same. And, and now there, there's a lot of people doing this. There's a lot of firms doing this. It's hard for any practice to learn something new. We're not paid as architects to do our own R and D and research and figure out how to do something. And we carry enormous risk with, with whatever we do. And so advocating for something we don't know is, is slightly insane. <laughs> um, yeah, from a risk reward point of view, it makes no, no, you know, no sense at all. But I think the difference is that our community, I think architects believe deeply in making a difference in our community and making a difference in our planet. And so we will very often not necessarily do the, I wish this wasn't always true, but the right thing for our own pocketbook, but very much the right thing for the world. And this is an example of that. It's a place where we have to you know, learn something new because it matters and it's inevitable and um, the world is asking us to do it. Thank you so much, Michael, Natalie. We could have gone on for a couple more hours, I feel like. <laughs> but uh, for people that want to follow along with you guys and, and just kind of continue this conversation with you, what's the best way to keep up with what you're doing and future conversations that you're having? Um, you know, we'll always share, um, we'll try to keep producing nice work that we can. And, um, we are happy to try to help others, um, whenever we can. Um, I think the conference is a place we hope to meet as many people as possible and, uh, and share our stories and make this, this all a more successful system and a really competitive system to alternatives that are not so good for the planet. And then the website is mg-architecture.ca and uh, social media if people want to follow along with you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. We, and we have our Instagram. We have an Instagram, Facebook, and you're asking us to know what that is. <laughs> our Instagram is pretty probably the best uh, M- to follow. I, I think, yeah. It, yeah, Instagram, MGA. I think it's under MGA or Michael Green Architecture, <laughs> but we generally are moving to MGA as a firm name because Natalie over here needs her name on the door. So we're working on that too. And uh, yeah, so find us. I think you can just search. I'm us. happy to, I'm happy to report Instagram. If you just type in MGA, at least on mine, it, you're the third, you're the third to come up. So are the first two concrete and steel companies? Cause that would be disturbing. No, the one is, <laughs> the one is some, you know, uh, blue check marked Michael Gandolfini, whoever he is. And then there's an MGA entertainment Inc, but you're, oh. you're proudly right there. Number three. So great. Michael Gandolfini <laughs> sounds famous. So you guys are MG Architecture uh, for those that want to check it out. But um, thank you so much, Michael, Natalie. Really appreciate it. I love this conversation. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you to the listeners for listening. And we will talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to Infratech Outdoor Comfort Heating for their support of this episode of Spaces Podcasts. Visit infratech-usa.com slash podcast to sign up for a free consultation and learn why Infratech is the choice for bringing indoor comfort to outdoor living. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. 
And hold on tight for Season 2, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative for Metro Pay. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.